0: I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And And we're we're The the Trade Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by
1: CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys.
2: On this week's episode, The Trade Guys host Monica Whaley of the National Center for APEC and discuss past successes and upcoming agenda items at APEC from digital policy
1: to inclusivity and sustainability. Welcome to The Trade Guys. Bill and I are delighted to be joined by Monica Whaley for this week's episode. Monica has headed the National Center for APEC for almost two decades and is an expert on everything Asia Pacific. Now, the association she leads is is quite unique. APEC, as an as a economic forum, has official roles for the private sector. There's something called the APEC Business Advisory Council, and each economy that is a member of APEC appoints three leaders, business leaders, private sector leaders, to that council. Monica's organization is, is the secretariat for those business leaders from the United States who are helping to guide the process of the Asia Pacific economic cooperation. In any case, uh, Monica is an old hand in Asia. We're delighted to have her on the program because today she was part of a program at CSIS called Asian Architecture. Lots is going on and so Monica, welcome. Glad you're here.
2: Thanks, Scott, and thank you, Bill, for inviting me to be on. It's a it's a pleasure. Long-time listener, first-time attendee, <laughs> first-time uh, participant. It's great to be here and it certainly is um, the sort of the, the the month and the time to be talking about this with so much going on in the Asia Pacific for the next few weeks.
1: Great, would you remind the audience what APEC is and does and how it operates?
2: Sure, the, the short version is, it is a an intergovernmental body that is, includes 21 different economies, as we call them in APEC. Basically rings around the Pacific and the U.S. has was one of the original members and U.S., Canada and, and all of Latin America, and then you get you know Russia and all of East Asia and Southeast Asia. And some of the Pacific Islands too, and, and it's uh, 21 economies that work together on a lot of issues. So this is the hard part to kind of quantify, but it's a, it's a the range of issues APEC touches are huge, but they're all economic in one way or another. And they all require some uh, capacity building, is another you know, really important leg of APEC. And they try to find those issues that they can gain consensus on moving forward on. So APEC isn't a treaty. It's not, uh, there's not a lot of laws and rules around it, other than there's protocols and standards for it, but it's, it's much more consensus based organization. So the um, US government has, has long been a participant. And as you said, Scott, it has a formal business input mechanism which is different than really any uh, any of the other intergovernmental bodies that I know and so the APEC business Advisory Council as well as some other entities have seats at the table during APEC discussions the other seats are observers like the Pacific Economic Cooperation Council which is more of a national Center for APEC is also the Secretariat for um, sort of tripartite business government and uh, and academia uh, so that's sort of the think tank of APEC and then the APEC Business Advisory Council is the business uh, views, business voice of APEC and then you have the, the governments that uh, work with each other but they you know they cover almost every topic under the sun it has to do with trade investment, inclusion sustainability, digital really covers the waterfront.
0: Who are the main companies right now? I mean they, they take turns who are the, who are your leaders that you're working with?
2: Okay. Right now, we're actually on, on the hunt for companies that would like to serve on the U.S. ABAC. Right now, there are two members that are in, in current till the end of the year, uh, Nate Gatton from American Airlines, and also Mark Burkhalter, who is with Burkhalter International, and he is, is an ABAC member and based in Georgia, but... In an airplane most of the time, and uh, we did have Peggy Johnson, who was with Microsoft and now with Magic Leap. She's the CEO of a company that does VR sorts of interactions called Magic Leap, and she was on the ABAC until earlier this year when she actually took on that new uh, that new CEO job. So um, we've had great representation from. You know, digital, obviously, the American Airlines piece, Nate, was really useful when people started talking about getting people moving around the region again and what that means and also just the the whole free trade and uh, trade investment liberalization part. And Mark has done a lot of work when he was with the the Georgia State House, I believe he was the Speaker of the House, I think, uh, on drawing foreign direct investment into Georgia. And so he had a lot of experience kind of on that side of uh, the investment piece. So that's who we've got now but looking for new ones. People, uh, we're gonna have some, uh, Nate has done his turn (laughs) and needs to to rotate off at the end of this year. And as I said, uh, Peggy had to to leave to be um, the the CEO of Magic Leap. So we are in search of new ABAC members.
0: So listeners out there, sign up.
2: Contact me.
0: (laughs) We don't do job searches on the trade guys very often.
2: And there's no, it's no pay. In fact, (laughs) quite the opposite, as Scott knows. The uh, (laughs) takes a good deal of resources.
1: But it, but it is a valuable way to have your ideas listened to by some very important governments seeking to in- increase economic cooperation. So it's a good deal for for the people involved. So the leaders meeting is about to happen. What's on the agenda and what are your expectations?
2: Well, one thing is last year's agenda served up the Putrajaya vision statement, which was uh, emerged out of the Malaysia meetings. And that was this overarching vision for APEC that would include the digital piece of it, the sustainable sustainability piece, as well as inclusion as major portions and, and supply chain, obviously, as part of that. This year, the New Zealanders have been focusing on how do you do an implementation plan for that vision? So that's one sort of big step APEC wants to take. But on top of that, you know, New Zealand is really focused on some very specific things in the inclusion area. In fact, the first time I think ever we've really talked about indigenous inclusion in APEC. And, and we had an indigenous business leaders conference and we had uh, participants from all over different APEC economies, which was really interesting. They also have done a great deal on sustainability. They obviously have focused, I mentioned this morning on the program, uh, did a lot of focus on the WTO. What how could APEC or how can APEC contribute to moving the WTO forward in in reforms or in whatever whatever shape it should be? But for New Zealand, the WTO is is like you know blood in the veins, it's really really important. And so they wanted to be sure that their APEC chairmanship contributed toward that. Interesting that the cop meeting is just really right on top of APEC this year, and I think that uh, more so than, you know, every year it seems APEC does more in the realm of sustainability and and climate I mean and they really have, have New Zealand has made out a great focus this year as well it's hard to, not to focus on it with some of the disasters and things going on so I think it became a natural one but obviously re- recovering from covid is underlies the whole thing. I mean, we have to reopen travel. We have to get supply chains moving so that we have moving period, but so, especially so that we have the things that we need to fight the pandemic, vaccines and essential medical goods. But really the whole, every part of the supply chain is we found out this year that the COVID-19 pandemic has not only, it hits the hardest hit worse than it hits anybody else, the most vulnerable are the hardest hit by it. But you also have it disrupts every piece of the economy, especially anything where you've got to have people to people. And, yeah, you, know, you really, boy, I'll tell you, after a year and a half of no APEC live meetings, we really miss seeing everybody. We miss those interactions. And I think that the real business of any business, but of APEC, I know, has really been missing that ability to grab a cup of coffee with someone or have a quiet conversation in the hallway and and make sure things go more smoothly. It's just harder on this kind of a format.
0: Isn't this the one where the leaders have to wear the funny shirts?
2: Now, Bill, you always bring up the funny shirts. I'm going to get you a funny shirt. Uh, (laughs) And
1: and how funny is it this year? That's the real question.
2: Yeah, really. Well, how funny has it ever been? And there were there were very nice Eddie Bauer parkas in Seattle in 1993, and then lovely Aloha shirts in that 2011. That tradition, the family photo as they call it, um, has been the tradition. That now they take it on Zoom, and everybody uses the same backdrop. So if you look, they did an extraordinary meeting in July of the leaders. They've never they've always met in November or yeah you know, whatever at the big leaders meeting, and this year New Zealand called one mid year. And uh, we had full participation in that with all the leaders in their backgrounds, but they talked about uh, COVID-19. They just did a special session on COVID and how we get back to recovery and, and how to build back better.
1: APEC has been known to really raise its game from time to time. In the Blake Island meetings in, in Seattle, the notion of the, what became the Bogor goals, which is free trade and investment, Throughout the Asia Pacific in 10 or 20 years was a kind of a big, hairy, audacious goal that amazingly was, was pretty, for all intents and purposes, was achieved in many respects. We made a lot of progress. I remember TPP initially came out of I think it was the Australia meetings in roughly 2006. It had it had its start before that, but the that was when the US commitments happened and it was further energized in 2011 in Hawaii. So what what's what's on the agenda that's big is APEC raising its sights. Well,
2: the This Putrajaya vision that I talked about doesn't, it may take as long as it took people to understand how to say the Bogor goals, because that's a really hard thing to say too, but the the vision and the goal is actually for for 2040, and you'll love this, Scott, because the word seamless is in there, and I know you've raised that a number of times, trying to talk about a a seamless, sustainable, inclusive, Asia-Pacific. Region is being the, is the is the vision for 2040. So they wanted to take the Bogor goals and say, look, we have what you just said. Basically, they've been achieved for most intensive purposes. And so, what's the next step? Where do we go from there? Because 2020 is obviously behind us. So they they new target is 2040, and I mean the specifics of the target are no more specific than the Bogor goals were specific as to what was being done between them, but to move toward a, a, a more seamless and integrated and inclusive Asia-Pacific region. And I think that the, the thing that COVID brought out is all the people that it left behind. And I think they were left even farther behind because of COVID. And I think that the inclusive piece of APEC has gotten very serious. There's serious talk about what to do. There's always been talk about SMEs. But really, how do you digitize them? How do you get rural broadband? How do you do specific things that are going to bring more people into the economy? How are we going to get more women involved in the economy? And a lot of these places where they don't quite make up fifty percent of the business community, and you know, so and and the indigenous populations, all all sorts of different subpopulations which have been either marginalized for one reason or another. But it's there's a very serious view in APEC that it. And I think this really came out of the Chile year when they weren't able to actually have meetings because they had the the uh, civil unrest there. And part of that, the focus of that unrest was the inequality. And so they'd say, how do, we, how do we really make sure that the benefits of trade, which we all agree occur, how do we make sure they are more broadly distributed throughout um, the economy?
0: I don't want to ask too provocative a question, but-
2: Oh, come on, Bill. <laughs>
0: A lot of the things you, you just listed uh, seem to play to the current administration's uh, interests. Uh, you know, uh, SMEs, women, uh, I mean, a lot of the trade talk coming out of the administration is about empowerment. Uh, it's about, uh, we heard it this morning because in addition to Monica on the on the program, we had Manu Bala from the State Department, who is the, the senior uh, acting senior official for APEC at State, and Michael Beeman, who's the assistant USDR for APEC. And both of them talked about the new mantra, which is the race to the top. How is the U.S. government doing in this? Are they playing an active role in APEC?
2: I think they're definitely um, more so in line with those issues than the previous administration had other priorities and, and different angles on APEC that they were very active in. The digital side was very active and and other things. But the New Zealanders in the chair and as the chair have been able to really design the plan for APEC this year to, to really focus on these inclusive issues. It happens that we also elected an administration that believes very strongly in this. And so there's been very much pushing against an open door when it comes to I mean, there's already a State Department office of Women's uh, Empowerment that's that's actively working with us on putting on a, a Women's Empowerment event soon. That they've been working on it every year. That's been something actually. Last administration and this administration both had uh, significant programs on, on Women's Empowerment and, and sort of those kind of issues. The the environment and sustainability agenda is certainly more active um, now than it was the previous administration. And then you know we had some there've been some changes, but for the most part, I mean the trade agenda. Does, nothing looks drastically different, but I know that there's a very active presence from across the US agencies in APAC. We had in fact at the, the Indigenous Business Program that we told you the day back um, hosted this year, uh, Secretary Holland was one of the, the keynote speakers along with New Zealand's uh, foreign minister who is also, you know, she's, she's Maori, Indigenous uh, New Zealand. So that was, there's been across the US agencies a, a greater awareness of APEC, and that was just one, one example. But, you know, food and health, a, you know, HHS, all the agencies really know that there's an APEC ore in the water. And I think especially now that we have 2023 on the horizon, have to start thinking about what, what is it we can do? What is it, uh, you know, Department of Labor, what is it, where are there places in APEC where we can actually step in and make a difference?
1: You know, for years, the private sector of the United States really admired what was going on in APEC. They they found it kind of a happy hunting ground. And while we never really talked about market access, it was always about market access. It was always about, you know, eliminating barriers and solving problems. You know, how much of that is still going on? And what are your expectations for it to continue during the current administration?
2: Well, I think it's still, it's still seen as a useful place, a very useful place to attack certain things, which are issues that are a little bit more thorny in other areas, like the the head-to-head combat that we do in in other you know bodies like the WTO on issues, APEC gives you a little more breathing room to approach an issue with a, maybe a more creative solution, maybe something that you could try as a demonstration project, maybe do something with a certain number of economies where everybody's not quite ready to step on board yet. Everyone agrees that that's where you're going to go. We call those pathfinder projects, and there's you know projects where you we we say that you 12 are gonna go ahead and try this amongst yourselves, share the learnings, share you know the, the lessons learned out of this project, and then the rest of us are able to come along later. And that sort of flexibility that APEC offers and agility, frankly, is because businesses are more agile than governments, creating the environment where businesses can be agile and try some of these things and, and experiment with some of these ideas in APEC in a way that's not threatening actually allows us, I think, to make more progress in a lot of cases than is necessarily done when you have the two sides on the opposite side of the table and you're kind of in, in combat mode.
1: Bill and I talk a lot to our, our friends from Europe and elsewhere who for, have spent a number of years pining for a return to multilateralism. And mostly what I say, I think Bill may say, say it too, is, okay, here's your best case scenario. Get to work. What are you doing to take advantage of the fact there's now an administration that embraces that notion as well? How's that playing out in APEC?
2: There was nobody stepping up to host APEC in 2023, and people really wondered what was going to happen next. When uh, Vice President Harris went to Singapore and, and put the offer on the table that the United States would host, First of all, at this short a notice, there's very few economies that could pull this off. Frankly, it's, it's a huge you know, logistical and financial undertaking. But the fact that we're doing it, the fact that we can lay out the, the groundwork for and, and set the agenda for the next 10 years, which is what we did in 2011 and in 1993, I and mean, we were able to really set the agenda going forward. That is something that was very much welcomed in the other parts of the Asia Pacific. The, our, our partners in, in other APEC economies were thrilled that the U.S. had uh, raised its hand, and the APEC process just happens to be such that it there the consensus will be arrived at at the leaders meeting, and that's the timing of when the acceptance of that offer we expect will take place. And there's always you know things to work out with various individual economies to get that consensus, but this is very much standard practice. It just happened on such a short time frame this year that that uh, I think that's where we're we're excited.
0: The rumor was that the uh, the Chinese and the Russians were not very excited about the U.S. being the host. Are we overcoming that problem? You think?
2: I think there's well, I know that there's been talks all around, and and I won't go into specifics, but I do think there's you know that I think that there's an understanding that. Someone's got to host in 2023, and they just use that opportunity to maybe discuss some issues that they have ongoing between each other, and see if they can use it to to find a path forward. It's not that much different than Congress trying to get something done. There's uh, there's discussions on the sideline, but I I fully expect that there'll be. Movement forward.
1: The lovers of the multilateral process will will note that uh, that it's consensus at the W two O as well. So people have to have to get around the table and bargain and get what they can and then move.
2: That's right. Yeah. So I think it's an opportunity, but but really, for the, by and large, you know, in in Southeast Asia, when actually when Vice President Harris said uh, made the announcement, in Singapore, the Singaporeans were the first first up. Just were just delighted that the U S was going to be stepping forward, and I think that's a feeling generally felt throughout the region.
0: Well, that was kind of my expectation. It seemed to me that it, it was one of these things where, uh, you know, and I'm not sure that it's hard to get somebody to do it for exactly the reason you said. It's a lot of work and it costs money, uh, particularly yeah. if you're back in an in-person uh, environment. You know, you have to find a host city that's willing to do it. Somebody's got to deal with the financing.
2: You have to find four or five host cities.
0: Yeah, you got 25, 21 leaders,
1: uh, which is in itself a, a major undertaking.
2: Major undertaking. And you've got ministerials throughout the year. You've got four sets of senior officials meetings. I mean, last time, if you'll remember 2011, we started out in D.C. and did um, sort of the first sets of senior officials meetings there. We did an informal senior officials meeting in December in uh, Honolulu before the me- the year started, really. And then we went to Big Sky, Montana for the trade ministers meetings and uh, senior officials meetings and, and the SME ministers meetings, kind of paired those together. And then to San Francisco in the fall, and that was where um, Secretary Clinton launched the first Women in the Economy Summit that was, that was held there for the first time in APEC. And then we had a, a high-level meeting on health, which happened for the first time in the U.S. And then we had a Transportation Ministerial and Energy Ministerial, and then a joint session of Energy and Transport Ministers. And then uh, then all the stuff, I mean, that doesn't even include all the stuff that happened in Honolulu, which included the CEO summit and the finance ministers meeting and ABAC's fourth meeting, and, as well as the, the uh, joint ministerial meeting, trade ministers and foreign ministers, and then the leaders retreat. So it's, it's, a, it's a full plate.
0: Well, that was an era, though, that was also going on when the United States had decided to join the TPP negotiations. And where the the Obama administration's, I think, very clear view was that the United States needed to have a strong physical, economic, and military presence in in Asia generally. Needed to do a variety of things to persuade the countries that are there that the United States was committed to the region and intended to stay there. Uh, And he made the case for TPP as an integral part of that, that... Stopped when Trump came in, as you know. Do you th- now we have we're back to the Democrats now, including the president who was vice president then. Do you think there's that same uh, that same thinking going on in this administration that the United States needs to do more in the region to demonstrate its commitment?
2: I think there's definitely part of the reason for for raising your hand for APEC is to demonstrate that commitment that we have, um, and I think that the the beauty of the APEC piece of it is because through other other avenues we've expressed our interest in the area in the region in a security and military way and political military side of things and the economic side is really where APEC comes in and i think that's where um where the us is showing their commitment i think it's an important an important way to do that that's um, but i don't know whether or not in like in this political environment if we could get some form of involvement in cptpp through or not, they they did USMCA and um, they did that with Democratic votes. And I think um, done the right way, we could probably find our way back to TPP. It's my dearest hope we find a way back to something with that group of, of countries, because it is um, at, and Matt um, Goodman was saying this morning at the high, the high quality, comprehensive you know, regional trading arrangement and economic arrangement. It's really what has um, got to be the goal. So we're hoping that that's where this is moving toward. But I do think the US is showing its demonstra- demonstrating its commitment to it. I think we've heard that from in the Quad meetings that they've been leading. I think it's, um, it's been a uh, pretty clearly stated goal.
0: I'm glad to hear that. I, I agree with you, that, I, and I, we've talked about this in, in past podcasts. I think it's inevitable that we get back to CPTPP. It's going to take us a while to get there. I've told them directly they're fighting the last war on this, that the, 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 the politics have changed. Uh, sadly, and maybe you would want to comment, on it, I think one of the reasons the politics have changed uh, is because public opinion and congressional opinion, for that matter, about China uh, have changed over the last five years. Uh, and uh, the relationship has gotten markedly worse. The record rhetoric has gotten markedly worse. Uh, and I think not so much, or not just because of Trump, but because of the policies the Chinese government is pursuing, uh, not only economic policies, but more human rights policies and the things that we that we, we all know about. I think that ultimately leads the United States back into more arrangements because they're going to be supported by people who were previously skeptical, uh, as ways to uh, basically be counter to China. But let me ask you about one in particular, because I think there's some people that are close observers of the region that would like that to happen and agree with you that it may ultimately happen, but think that it's also important in the short run for the United States to do more than it has. And one of the issues that has come up, sort of a plan B, if you will, has been the idea of a Indo-Pacific digital trade agreement. The theory being, um, let's focus on issues where there aren't a lot of rules and where there aren't a lot of built-in protectionist policies. So emerging technologies, which we talked about this morning, uh, that might be politically uh, easier to do or not. What do you think? Is that a, is that a viable plan going forward?
2: I think easier to do is still not easy. <laughs> um, it's that it would take a lot of work, and I think it would uh, the the difficulty would be in the details, as it always is when moving forward on something like that. But it would be the kind of thing from a, a bit, from a sort of messaging perspective. Digital is where the United States is a is a leader. It's a place where the Asia Pacific is where. 85, 90 percent of the the companies that are doing this are based in the Asia Pacific, and including China's kind of companies. And if we can start those kinds of discussions around an APEC table, where there is a presence there from uh, the Chinese Taipei delegation and the you know the the uh, you know ASEANs uh, that are all very active, I think that's a place where you can have that conversation. Whether or not the U.S. can join some of the efforts that Singapore and Chile have have started already on a digital uh, arrangement of some kind or somehow um, link up, take the best of that and and grow it as was done. Frankly, that's how the TPP came into existence. The P4 started it and uh, Chile's New Zealand and Brunei and uh, Singapore. Are the ones that that pulled that together. So I think some arrangement like that that grows uh, into a digital trade agreement of some kind, I think is, is certainly possible. But it's again, it would be it would be hard work as well. <laughs> but APEC is good at those things that don't have a lot of structure around them yet, or the the emerging issues, the new areas uh, that we haven't already been sort of locked into. Um, stultifying rules in, uh, and APEC does a good job at, at finding out what's the best path there.
1: Yeah, it's one of the reasons that APEC has succeeded is it it manages to stumble across the art of the possible and it moves ahead where it can on what it can. And so, look, I'm delighted that uh, the U.S. is showing interest in it. Uh, maybe a good time to do a couple things. One is get rolling on a couple of these issues practically, but then conduct your own rebranding. Look, as you point out, uh, it was originally the P4, and then it became TPP, and now it's CPTPP, the unpronounceable acronym, okay? Uh, and uh, somehow here in the United States, NAFTA was the worst trade agreement since the earth had cooled, and USMCA was overwhelmingly supported by elected officials of both parties. So you tell me, but, but uh, you got a lot of smart marketing people showing up those ABAC meetings. Let's get a branding study together.
2: <laughs> no it's true I think that's it's a lot of the battle can be that uh, that branding piece certainly because um, I think that's the only reason it got unplugged in the first place was a, of a branding issue so
1: yes uh, so true Monica thanks so much for joining us uh, it's great to see you again on on the zoom call it's great to, to talk to you on, uh, about what's going on in the Asia-Pacific and uh, let us know when you'd like to come back on because we're always happy to, to have you as a
0: guest <laughs>
2: That's great. Thanks so much. Nice to see you both, too. We'll see you soon. Thanks.
0: Appreciate it. To our
1: listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.